Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, Life is full of questions. And if you're anything like me, you might be an analytical person and you question everything. Uh, I, I have always in my head an inventory of questions like, what was the best thing before sliced bread? Uh, That's one of my questions. Um, Why do they call apartments apartments when they are all stuck together? That doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Why does the guy at the bank who gives you money called a broker? I never understood that. Why do kamikaze pilots wear helmets? That's one of my questions. If, If you were to get in an interaction or a fight with the Smurf and you end up choking a smurf, what color would his skin turn when he's about to die? That's one of my questions I always wondered. Um, I always wonder what are those plastic things at the end of our shoelaces? What is the name of those things? And I have other questions. I want to know why people listen to One Direction. I want to know what that. Um, I want to know why people still watch The Bachelorette. I don't, I don't understand that. I mean, people were watching that when I was in high school, and, and it's still happening. I just I don't get it. But, so some of you might have questions like that that you're trying to sort out. Um, maybe some of you have more serious questions, and hopefully you do. Uh, maybe those questions aren't the ones that keep you up at night. But I do want to challenge you. Maybe you're a person who's thinking through Um, why does God allow evil to happen in the world? Why doesn't he just end it? Why is there disease? Why is there suffering? Why is there starvation? Uh, Why is it that God doesn't answer the prayers that I ask him? Why does he allow these things to take place? Why does he cause these things to happen? And so what is he doing? Does he even care sometimes is our questions. And so maybe you've come this morning and you have a bunch of questions, and maybe I will even say it this way, maybe you have some frustrations with God, and that is okay. We're glad that you're here, Um, and so you can be challenged by this book, because in this book, the book of Habakkuk, you see a guy who's a prophet of God that is struggling with sincere, genuine, and authentic questions that he has for God. He's very frustrated with God is what you'll see. Very frustrated with God. And he has, and I love this book because what you'll see is an honest person. Wouldn't that be great if we always could be honest this morning and just be honest with our questions for God, honest with our frustrations with God? This is the book of Habakkuk. And so the big idea and where we want you to leave this morning with is that God is big that he's sovereign, that he reigns supreme, and he is a big, gracious, loving God. And because we want you to worship a big God, all right? And that's the God of the Bible. And so we want you to wrestle with the hard things in scripture, to get to know the God of the Bible, because that's the God who changes you from the inside out, all right? So you ready for that this morning? Wow, the nine o'clock. Good, thank you. Good, good, good. Um, Okay, so let's get started. Verse one. Chapter 1 of Habakkuk. The Word of God tells us the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So this right here will tell us who the author is. I'm going to give you a little bit of background here so that we can know and understand the rest of the book. Because we don't understand context, we'll get lost. And that's the danger of thinking sometimes you'll read the Bible, you don't have any context, you don't have any way to really navigate what's happening. It's important that we understand context. So Habakkuk is the author and he is a prophet. We don't know much more about Habakkuk other than that. He's a guy who hears from God, and then he speaks what God says. That's what prophets did in the Old Testament. And so 
Here he is. He is living in approximately uh, six, 640 years or 600 years before Christ came into the world. And, he, and there's a phrase here that shows up in verse 1. It says, the oracle, which means literally the burden. So it's important that we understand what his burden is. What is the thing that, is, that he's struggling with the most? What's the context that he's dealing with here in Habakkuk? What is his Burden. Now, this is what's happened so far in Israel's history. History. Um, he is living in a time in, in some place called Judah, which is a tribe of Israel. And what you'll see about Israel's history, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see starting with toward the end of or beginning of Exodus, all the way through the end of the, the Old Testament, Malachi, you'll recognize that Israel is up and down, up and down, up and down. It's like watching the Food Network. Every other episode is good. The other ones in between are, are terrible. And you're just like, why can't they just have consistency, right? Well, this is kind of an up and down flow. And so right now, where Habakkuk is in history is in Judah during a time where it has gone horribly, horribly, horribly wrong. And what's happened prior to this is they just saw an upswing. There were times in Israel's history where they waited thousands of years for the right leaders. And if you look in Israel's history, you know what you'll notice in like First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, most of the time when Israel do, does well, it's when they have the right leader in place. But other than that, they're, they're unbelieving. They're just running around crazy people, worshiping idols, falling into incredible immorality and violence. It's dog eats dog. And what we have right before Habakkuk, and Habakkuk would have this fresh in his memory. He just saw a great leader named Josiah come and lead them into a reform to where they were taking idols and crushing them into tiny little pieces. And here you have this leader who's eight years old at the time that they, they bring him in to be king. Now, most of the time we hear that and we think, man, what a great leader. He was brought in when he was eight years old. Here's the thing. I have a six-year-old, all right? And I cannot think of any world that he needs to be king, all right? I mean, it would be Legoland overnight, right? We would all be, we would all be uh, it would be against the law not to eat gummy bears. I mean, that's where, the, that's where it would go. And so an eight-year-old is king. That should give you an indication of how messed up things were in Judah, and so here he goes, eight years old, all the way up to 16 years old. He's like cleaning out the temple and some spring cleaning. He finds the law, the law of Moses that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And what does he do? He, he begins to reinstate the law. We're going to start telling these people the law once again. We're going to start reinstating the Passover so people remember them being led out of captivity. And so here you have him reinstating the law. Josiah. But then what happens next? Well, he dies. Now, parents in this room will get this illustration a little bit more, but I hope you can track with this. I have two boys, and we have in our household family rules. 
We have them up on our wall, and it says certain rules that we abide by. We have a couple rules where I, I tell my son, my six-year-old, I said, Finn, when daddy talks, you do what? He says, you listen. When daddy tells you to do something, you do it when? He says, right away. And I say, why? He says, because we love each other. And when he was a little boy, when he was four, three years old, he said, well, because we love each other's. And that was one of the things that he would say. And so that's one of our things that we do. And we have other rules, like when you go to someone's house, you, don't, you, you respect their things. You look at people in the eye when they talk to you. You respect other people's property and other people's, um, in, your, in your conversation with them. You honor them when you speak to them. And these are rules that we have. But they abide by those rules because we are his parents and we enforce those rules. But it's not because they know Jesus. They don't know Jesus yet. We're praying that they do one day, that God would soften their hearts and allow, make, make them receptive to the gospel. We're, we're praying for that. But right now, they abide by the rules because we place the rules in our life. And it's consistent and we you know, we get them to listen. But here's what happens with the family rules. Grandma happens to the family rules. Because we take them to grandma's house, and then the rules, they have a little bit less of a meaning at grandma's house. Yes doesn't mean yes right away. We, don't, we can do it later. We can count to 10. We can count to 50. You know, you can play out in, your, in the yard with your underwear. Totally fine at grandma's house. You can stay up till 1030. You can watch movies that you're not allowed to watch home because you ask grandma in a certain way and she, she doesn't know your tactics yet. And so what happens when they come back from grandma's house, they got a swagger. Like Finn walks in, he's like, what's up, right? Get me a drink. Whoa, what in the world, right? He's like smoking a pipe. I mean, I don't even understand it. And I coming in here, and they're acting all like Gideon's, like he's turning, I mean, he's doing cartwheel. I mean, it's stuff that we've never seen. And so we're just trying to figure it out. And what happens is we have to reinstate the law once again. And so here in Israel's history, you have them disobeying the law. And then they have, you have this leader, Josiah, comes and he reinstates the law. Then all of a sudden, they, they are healthy for a small period of time. But when he dies, guess what happens? They go right back to their sinful ways once again. And the reason why they do that is because of what Paul says about the law in Romans 7. Now, stay with me because this is going to help us understand this book, all right? Romans 7, verse 12, it says this about the law. He says, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me. What is good in order that we, we might, that sin might be shown sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And so here you have the law. It reminds us of our sin. That's why God put the law in place to show the Israelites that they were sinners. How gracious God is to let us know what sin actually is. But for a non-believer, here's what the law does. Romans 5 tells us it stirs up sin. So for a believer who loves Jesus, we want to obey him and do whatever he says because he gives us a new heart, because we believe in Jesus' perfect sinless life, his sacrificial death, his, uh, his resurrection from the grave, that if we repent of our sins, we believe in Jesus, he gives us a new heart, and that, that heart desires to love and honor Jesus. But for those who don't love Jesus, when we're exposed to our sin, Romans 5 says it stirs up sin even more. Meaning when we are 
are confronted with the law and we're non-believers, we want to sin more. So it's just like my boys when they send them away to grandma's house and they know the law that mom and dad have said and they're at now grandma's house and they try then to disobey all the things that we have already set in place. That's what non-believers do. And that's not human. Yes, human beings. That's how we are. I mean, think of that last time you saw wet paint. What do you want to do? You want to touch it. You want to touch it. I mean, one of my biggest things, there's multiple fire alarms in here. And it's red. And that red just draws me to it. Because I know I'm not supposed to do it, but I'll have to pull that thing. And I really want to take that little hammer out and break that glass so badly. So if there's ever a fire in here, you have to let me do that, all right? You have to let me do that. But that is who we are. That is what we do. I was just at Life Group the other week, and our host home is at the Rutgers house. And they have a sidewalk that they're putting in place. And it's wet cement. I want to put my face in there, you know? I just want to have my face in there. And that's what the law will often do. It, it stirs us up even more. What's, so, what's such a big deal about that? I want to go do that. Does that sound familiar? Do not eat of this tree, right? That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go straight for that tree. That's what we do. And so here you have Habakkuk. He's among non-believers who are stirred up because the law has been exposed to them to sin even more to take on more idols, to ha- live more immoral than they did before, to have more violence, more destruction, and it is like living among crazy, hyperactive children. And guess what? He's a prophet. And he's got to tell these people what God says. Can you imagine he's being frustrated? Can you imagine the frustration that Habakkuk, this prophet, feels. He's got to go these, tell these children who don't love God to obey him. Very hard. Very hard. And so then we're brought to Habakkuk. He's now frustrated with God, questioning God, and he's asking God why these things are happening. So what we'll see is three different frustrations that Habakkuk has with God that I want you to see because I think in this room we'll probably find if not all three, at least some of these three things. Notice with me in verse 2. He says, Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Anyone ever say that to God? You're liars. All right. (laughs) Or cry to you violence and you will not save. Notice the language that Habakkuk uses. He says, how long shall I cry for help and you when I hear? He says, the, the word literally means cry to you, which is, he's roar, it's like a, a scream or a roaring. He's the God, I've been screaming out that you would, you would redeem these people, that you would cause them not to be so violent and destructive. I have been pleading with you that you would do that. So the first frustration is that Habakkuk has, and I think a lot of us would have in this day, in this room, God doesn't answer my prayers. Anybody ever have that struggle? Anybody ever have that frustration with God that, God, I've been asking you to give me a boyfriend and girlfriend and you haven't answered. God, I've asked you to give me a spouse and you haven't answered. God, I've asked you to give me a child and you haven't 
answered. God, I've asked you to give me a job or give me the promotion at my job, and you haven't answered. God, I've asked you to give me healing, and you haven't answered. God, I've I've struggled with the same sin over and over, and I've asked you to take this away from me, and you haven't answered. And by asking the right way, if I say magic words, will you then respond? Are you even God? Are you even there? Are you even listening? And we find ourselves in Habakkuk's world all the time. How long will I continue to ask you and you just don't do anything? It just seems like you're not even there. So the first thing we have to do to to, to really deal with this tension is we have to ask ourselves one question. Are there times in the Bible where God doesn't answer prayers? And the answer to that is yes. There are times in the Bible where he does not answer prayers. In John 9, for instance, John 9, 31 Here you have Jesus, he heals a lame man, and then there's a crazy response from the crowd that sees him heal this person. And notice what they say. This is the way people understood God's character, and John consistently shows us this. He says this, John 9, 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God does what? He listens to him. And this is consistent with John's gospel because John always says things like this. He who has ears, let him hear. Well, everybody has ears. What's he saying? He who God has opened up your ears to actually hear and receive the gospel. That's who's going to hear the gospel. Those the Holy Spirit is drawing. That's who's going to hear the gospel. Or my sheep hear my voice. So he gives us language around these are my people. I hear them and they hear me. These are my people. And so believers only can hear Jesus. Non-believers, the first prayer that God hears you say is when you repent of your sins and you believe in the gospel, that is the prayer that he answers because any other prayer outside of that would only give you something that would, in the end, send you to hell. And that's why you need, that's why you need the gospel. That's why you need the gospel. So yes, there's times that he doesn't hear the prayers of non-believers. What about believers? Well, our sin sometimes affects our prayer life. It says in Psalm 66, verse 18, it says, the psalmist says, if I had cherished iniquity or sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Even have another example. First Peter, first Peter three, verse seven. When Peter is telling husbands how to love their wives, notice what he says. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as a weaker vessel, since they are all heirs uh, with you of the grace of life. It says this, so that your prayers might not be hindered. He's like, look, if you're a husband who loves your wife, you have to continue to honor her. And if you don't, your prayer life's going to be messed up. If you have secret, hidden sin in your life, your prayer life's going to be messed up. And we don't know how God works this, these things out. Sometimes he, he answers a prayer of people who have sin in their heart. We, he does that, but, but there are times where he doesn't because of the sin in our lives. And so there are times in Scripture where God does ignore a prayer. But what about believers who love Jesus, who re, re, constantly walking in repentance, constantly fighting for obedience. Why doesn't it seem like he answers their prayers? Why is that? Why is that? Well, before I answer that question, I want to show you 
Habakkuk's second frustration that he has with God. Because when we figure out both of these two, the two first frustrations, we'll understand how to answer this question rightly. Notice the second one that he has. Verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Notice he says, why do you idly look at wrong? Why are you taking so much time? So the first frustration is God has answered our prayers. The second frustration is God's timing isn't right, according to us, right? According to Habakkuk, God's timing isn't right. You are idly allowing and watching evil persist. And his prayer is that God would put an end to all of it. God, would you just stop all the evil that surrounds me? And it's obvious, based on this prayer, that Habakkuk has pleaded with the Lord before because he's saying, how long will you do this? How long? I've cried out to you. I'm screaming at the top of my lungs that you would stop this violence from happening. But it continues. And then he even says that it, uh, strife and contention is on the rise. I can only see it worse, God. I can only see it worse. So he's asking God, when is this going to happen? Now, these two frustrations are really built around one thing. By the way, God answers prayer. Does he not? Yes, no, and not right now. That's the way he answers prayer. Not the way we want them, but that's the way he answers prayer. Yes, no, and not right now. Most of the time, it's not right now for me. And that's what frustrates me so much about God, because it's like, God, your timing is not right. So God doesn't answer prayer. Your timing isn't right. What do those two things come from? It comes from a failing view of God's sovereignty, that God reigns above us, and he's over us, and he's sovereign and glorious over all things. And once we begin to scratch the surface of understanding and gripping God's sovereignty, we begin to answer those two questions or deal with those two frustrations very, very, very differently. Now, let me show you a few places in Scripture where you see the tension of God's sovereignty and how he answers prayer. The classic example is in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. The Word of God says this. It says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. This is confidence that we have toward God. If we ask anything according to our will or his will, his will, he hears us. Verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have asked the request that we have asked of him. So based on what we see in this verse, we, we, can, we can walk away saying God's, our prayer life is really confined to his perfect plan. It, it, it sits underneath his perfect plan. Now, can we think of another example in scripture where we've seen that? We might think of many examples. The irony of it is the most popular prayer in the Bible is actually one of the best analogies you can use about that. What's the most popular prayer in the Bible? The Lord's Prayer. So turn with me, if you will, to Luke 11. Start with verse 1. This is the Lord's Prayer. Now Jesus was praying in a, in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say this, Father, 
hallowed be your name. It's a great word. I'll explain them in a moment. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us of our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. What's the first thing he says at the beginning of the prayer? Hallowed be your name. What does that mean? The very first thing that he wants God to know about his prayer is that God, my main motivation, my main objective of coming to you is so that I can make much of your name, your glory, and your fame. That, that, that matters most to Jesus, that the Father's will would be satisfied, that the Father's will would take place. Everything we pray about should go underneath the banner of hallowed be your name. And so understanding it that way helps us understand what happens in the next few verses, or the next few lines of the Lord's Prayer. Give us each day our daily bread. What he's saying is, God, would you give me enough food so I can live? Because I want to live so I can continue to make much of your name. See the difference between those two? Because if you don't understand it through the lenses of God's sovereignty, you're just saying, God, give me a bunch of food. But when we understand it through God's sovereignty, we're saying, God, would you give me enough food? Give me this daily bread so that I can continue to make much of your name. Forgive us of our sins. Because if I'm continuing to sin, I can't make much of your name. It's going to distract me. It's not temptation. It's going to distract me. Forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Because if, I, if I'm walking around not forgiving my brother or sister in Christ, I am not giving honor and glory to your name. Everything that we pray falls underneath the banner of hallowed be your name. So everything we ask God, it should be underneath this banner. That's what Jesus is teaching us about how to pray and how it works through the lenses of his sovereignty. You guys tracking with that? I think I'm, I'm really excited about this. This side's a little bit more excited than this side. We've got to get this side going here. This middle is awesome. Um, so everything goes underneath his sovereignty. So when he says yes, praise God. He's got a big purpose. He's got a big plan. When he says no, praise God. He's, his name will be hallowed and glorified. When he says not right now, his name will be hallowed and glorified. His whole purpose of bringing us to a place of prayer that we would see him get the glory. So it seems like he doesn't answer, and it seems like his timing is not right, but as soon as we get our heads around the fact that God is timeless, he sits outside of time when he reigns supreme over all, we sit inside time, so when we think the timing isn't right, we're thinking of our own world, not God's magnificent plan that he has in place. We couldn't handle it if we saw what God was actually up to. We can handle it. Our brains could not handle it. And so he's put us in this world because of time. We have to have time. But he sits outside of time. It's not even a factor with him. And we look at him and we say, man, that doesn't seem fair. You're asking me to come to you and give you glory and give you praise. That's the whole motivation. Well, God's glory is the best thing for us, but it doesn't seem fair. And which just brings us to the third frustration that Habakkuk has. The first one is, you don't answer my prayers. The second one is, your timing's not right. The third one is, God isn't fair. Notice with me, if you will, in verse 4. So the law is paralyzed, and justice 
never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now, he says the law is paralyzed. I want to tell you what that means when he says that. That is his feeling. Because the law is actually accomplishing what it should. It's to stir up and show people aware, uh, their awareness of sin. And if they're believers, they'll be drawn to that. If they're non-believers, they're going to sin more. So for him, it seems like the law is not paralyzed. It's actually doing what it, what it set out to do. It's just expose sin. And so once these people are exposed, they're just sinning all the more. They're violent. They're, they're, just, they're self-destructive. And you have Habakkuk saying, man, it just seems like it's not doing what it, it's supposed to do. But he didn't have the New Testament like we have. He didn't have Romans 5 that tells us that this is what the law does. It stirs up sin. And so what he's asking, though, he says, God, why are you letting these people continue to sin? He's asking God, why don't you just wipe out all the bad people? Anybody have a problem with that prayer? Maybe because we are bad people? Like maybe it's because we're born in sin and we can't do anything righteous or just without Christ. But we always pray that, God, would you just wipe out all the bad people? He says, why do you make me see iniquity? Why are you making me see all these bad things around me? Why every time I turn on the news, I see all these crazy things take place? Why, why do you let wicked continue and justice goes forth perverted? Just like he says, we ask these questions all the time. We see horrible things around us all the time. And we, when I, when I turn on the news, I'm just thinking to myself sometimes, God, would you just get rid of the bad people already? The problem with that is, I find it very ironic that most of us are happy, even eager, to have God judge sin as long as it's not our sin. Anybody else? As long as it's not our sin, you can deal with sin however you want as long as it's not our sin. I mean, I don't know about you, but I watched Dateline, and I've watched to catch a predator. And those scoundrels, man, they're like, they're acting like they're like some young high school kid, and they're trying to rope in high school girls to take advantage of them they have them in their house. And then he, he comes out, and, you know, one of the, the guys from Dateline comes out of a room, and he says, you're under arrest. We busted you. And then they run out, and then they tase him. And I love that. I'm like, tase him some more. Hallelujah, right? You know, get the nightstick out. You know, shoot a couple of his decaps off just for the glory of God. Would you do that? You know, I'm, there's a part of me that's just like, yes, get those guys. You know, burn them on TV so no one does it anymore. You know, I'm thinking, you know, I just have crazy thoughts about other people's sin. And then in that moment when I'm getting all caught up, I'm getting all ginger on it. I, I start to think, Oh, wait, I sin too. And my sin's really offensive to God too. Oh, don't do that to me though, God. I don't want to be tased, right? My sin's just not that bad, right? It's just not that bad. In my mind, it's not that bad. And so I have this mindset like, yeah, Christians are different. You know, Christians can, or certain Christians can sin more and they're just, just the worse off. I'm a varsity level Christian. I don't sin as bad as that person. I love what Phil Yancey says. He says, Christians get very angry towards other Christians who sin differently than they do. Very true. Very true. But why does God let us see the sin of other people? That's Habakkuk's question. He's saying, why do you put this iniquity in front of me? Why are you letting me see all these horrible things around me? Why does he do it? 
Why does he do it to our own selves? Why does he show ourselves our own sin? Why does he expose Ben Tugwell's sin to Ben Tugwell all the time? Well, it's to make me humble. It's so that I can remember the power and the weight of the cross. It's to help me repent of my sin and that I can mature and become a healthier believer and, a, and, a, and a, uh, that my affections would stir for him even more. So why does he do it for other people? The same thing. It's to show me what God saved me from. It's to show me that uh, what, I, what I should hate in my own life. It's to show me that I admire grace so much. And then it draws me to share the gospel with people even more. And that's why God lets me see sin in others. That's why God lets me and makes me see horrible things that happen in front of me. Habakkuk didn't have this understanding because he didn't have the gospel. We have the gospel, so we should see it this way. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He says, ah, my brothers, we, we to know more of evil, we are to know more of of the evil of men, which is a bizarre statement. And it's to make us earnest in seeking their salvation. For there's anything in which the church is lacking more than any other matter, it is the matter of earnestness. So God shows us horrible things around us. First of all, to remind us that this world is not our home. We can't find our hope here. But it's also to press us to share the gospel even more. So for Habakkuk being a prophet, this shows him the urgency that he needs to be a prophet. It should draw him to that. And what you'll see in this book is it's full of pictures of God's justice. So I don't want to give a ton away. But here's what I want you to see. If we serve a big God, what God's trying to show us in this is that even in the immorality of the Israelites in the face of God. Even in that, God still will get his glory. And that's a beautiful picture. And I don't want you to miss that. Because when we get God's justice right, and we think that God's not fair, and we actually apply that truth to the cross of Christ, we begin to redefine the word deserve. Because for me, I feel like God... You just, I deserve my prayers to be answered. I've been asking you for this, and I, look, I'm a pastor. I deserve to have my prayers answered. And I deserve it to be in the time that I want it to be when you answer. I want you to answer it on a Wednesday at 2. I deserve that from you. That's my, that's my thinking sometimes. I, I deserve for not to be around bad people. I deserve that. I deserve you to remove bad people from my life. I deserve a comfortable life, God. The problem with that is the gospel. The gospel should wreck us when it comes to these things. Habakkuk didn't see the full weight of the cross of Christ because he didn't see Jesus yet. This is, he, Habakkuk lived 600 years before Christ even came. So he didn't see the full picture here. But when we see the full picture, we see Christ dying on the cross, living a perfect, sinless life, resurrecting from the grave and conquering the penalty of Satan's sin and death, we go, we deserve hell. Jesus, the Son of God, God sent his perfect son to die on the cross so that justice would happen, so that he would be fair, so that we could have eternal life. And he did that for us. And then we start changing the word 
deserve, do we not? I said, God, I deserve hell. I didn't deserve your son to die on the cross for my sins. I didn't deserve his resurrection in my life. I didn't deserve new life. I don't deserve eternal life. I don't deserve any of those things. So what does that mean? When we pray and we begin to ask questions like, God, why don't I have a girlfriend? Why don't I have a boyfriend? Why don't I have a spouse? Why don't I have a job? Why don't I have a promotion? Why don't I have a a beautiful home? Why don't I have an incredible car? We begin to filter that through the truth of the gospel. And what the gospel says is, I've given you my perfect, sinless son to die on the cross. I've proven that I love you. Everything else at this point on, by the way, that's enough. But everything at this point on is a bonus point. Beautiful wife, beautiful family, bonus point. Great church, bonus point. Great community, bonus point. Food to eat, bonus point. Air to breathe, bonus point. And we have to look at our lives. When we look at God's ultimate plan, we have to look at it through the lenses of the cross of Christ. If we miss that, we miss everything else. We miss everything else. And so it's my hope that we're honest with frustrations with God. That we're, if we're frustrated with God and I answer prayers, we need to be honest about it. If we're frustrated that his timing isn't right, we're, we need to be honest with it. If, if we're frustrated because we don't think God is fair, we need to be honest with it and we have to deal with God because it is God who makes us frustrated so that we would come to him and we would sh- plead to him to show us more of the gospel. And so it's a beautiful cycle that he does in our lives where he puts these frustrations in our lives so that we will be drawn to him and so that we find our hope and love in him. And so it's my hope this morning that we could cling to the cross of Christ and in the cross of Christ we find our true and only hope, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for showing us.